so often when we think about purpose and, and meaning or, or dharma in this case, we sort of feel like we have to go on this journey, this external journey to go find it. But what I kind of realized is that like, actually it was, it's inside of me, right? And it's inside of you. And, and, and there are some things that we can do to start to remove the layers, right, that are hiding it. What I think that we can start to do, though, is start to ask ourselves some questions that give us a, a peek back into what that essence is. Hey, everyone. It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. Today's guest is Sunil Gupta. After losing touch with his dharma, Sunil went on a journey to find it again. You might wonder, what the heck is that? That is the focus of today's episode. He's the founding CEO of Rise. He's a visiting scholar at the Harvard Medical School, and he spends his time traveling the world deconstructing how extraordinary performers overcome their most difficult moments. Now, Sunil's been a guest on the show before. It was specifically around what it takes to be a backable founder, to have other people rally around your ideas, whether this is investors or other teammates that you want to bring on a journey for trying to put something special out into the world. And his new book today we talk about, which is Everyday Dharma. These are a series of practices for finding success and joy in everything you do. Today's episode is a great one. Enjoy my conversation with Sunil Gupta. Sunil, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for joining us. Chase, it's so good to be here. It's great to have you back and congratulations on the new work. I've just, you know, as you know how these podcast things work, I've just done a lovely little introduction uh, to you and your work. Um, but for those folks who might not be familiar with your work and specifically your most recent work that we're excited to talk to you about today, can you orient us with that work? Uh, what got you into it and why you're uh, excited to be here on the show today? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited to be on the show because I feel like I'm amongst my people. You That's know, right. these creators or entrepreneurs. I mean, I've kind of been sort of playing in this playground with you for decades now. It feels like, and you know, and I think I think that for me, that 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 what drove me to this book, what drove me to the concept of Dharma, was really learning about it early as a kid. Um, learning about it on the on the porch of my grandfather's home in New Delhi, and then kind of turning my back on it, you know, just just not sort of feeling like as an American, as an Indian kid growing up in the United States, that that was something I wanted to touch. I I felt like I wanted to be as white as possible. I felt like I wanted to be as American as possible, and sort of these Eastern concepts were were not part of that sort of equation for me. Um, but I found myself like I think like a lot of people in in my career feeling very empty, um, mm -hmm. feeling feeling um, burnt out, lost, um, and just trying to make sense of it. And and I think the biggest thing for me was that I really felt like I was caught in what Do Dr. Tal Ben Shahar describes as the arrival fallacy, um, which is that you know you are going to get to this point where you have accumulated you know enough wealth, enough status, enough wins where suddenly you are going to sort of feel whole, fulfilled on the inside. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't feeling it. You know, I, I, I was getting, you know, to a certain degree, you know, the next promotion, the next deal, the next, you know, contract, all these things I was chasing and they're having very temporary fleeting sort of moments of success. And then it was just kind of like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And I'm like, wow, this just doesn't seem like a very happy, joyful way to live. Um, and I can't see myself getting to a point here in this path where anything is going to change. So what, what is the answer? 
And that's when I started to return to this, this idea of Dharma and, and Dharma is, you know, the, the, I think the, the best sort of translation is inner calling, but my grandfather described this as your essence. Like mm-hmm. each of us has an essence. You have an essence. I have an essence. And when we're expressing that essence, we come alive in a brand new way. Just the act of it, the action of doing it is the thing that actually brings us alive. Right. And you know, the question then is like, how do we live our Dharma, right? How do we find our Dharma in a lot of cases? And then I think the second thing is like, what happens when we have bills to pay and we have duties to keep and we have all this shit to do and our schedule is so back to back to back, even if we understand what our Dharma is, how do we make that live a contemporary life that we have right now? Or it just seems like we're so back to back to back. Beautiful. Now this is, a, a, to me, this is, um, I am fascinated by this for more reasons than one. One of these reasons that I will share, uh, and hopefully this comes off as it's intended to be in sort of a vulnerable way, the same exact concept has been, I would say, plaguing, but I don't know if that's the right word, but it's been on my mind for a long time. And when I I got an early copy of the book, which thank you and your publisher very much. And then I've just got yeah. the hardback, the one that just came out right here in my hands, which is did absolutely you take off, beautiful. Did you take off the jacket? No, I've still got it on there. I also so if you take it. off so if you take off the jacket, what you'll see is the full wheel of Dharma. Right? I get so, that. Uh, yeah, this, they, they did a nice job go. with that. Yeah. They did. They did. I also had a half jacket on my last book, and I also <laughs> encouraged people to take it off. It is a beautiful book package, but to me. In reading it, I had found what I, th- I, th- I think you nailed a bunch of stuff. I will share that I am working on another book and I went 50,000 words down almost this identical topic. And uh-huh. what I could not escape was the voice that was, hey, I figured it out. I had this lovely, happy, f- uh, I would say happy, successful life. I checked a lot of the you know, the boxes that you see on your, your in your career counselor's chart on the you know <laughs> the high school career counselor and um and at the end of you know checking all of those boxes, all of those successes were super fleeting. And then I found myself sometimes days, if not hours, days, and and on on the big ones, weeks after, you know, achieving this particular goal, summiting the mountain, you know, winning the award or whatever, feeling empty. And mm-hmm. where I where I stopped writing is that I could not escape that voice of just this sounds, yeah. oh, boohoo, yeah, and yeah. yet you have nailed it. You have somehow navigated this material in such a way that it feels like every person I know is has tapped into this in some way, shape or form. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out the way to get through this material and you did. And I'm guessing that you probably talked to a bunch of people. You have obviously achieved a lot of success in your own career. And as you shared in your opening, you know, that left you feeling somewhat empty, but how did you navigate this in such a way? And was it through talking to a lot of people? Because the irony was I kept scratching at this and everyone's telling me they feel the same way. Yeah. You you somehow nailed it. What was your way into this material? I, I think you're right. Everybody does feel the same way. And I think the problem that sometimes we sort of face when it comes to things like purpose is that we sort of see it as a, you know, something to luxuriate on, right? Mm-hmm. Something that we that was only available to certain people. Mm-hmm. And 
yet I think it's so primal. Yet, Chase, I, I, we may have talked about this long ago, but one of the one of the sort of most groundbreaking sort of moments I've had over the past few years was I was taking a hike, and it was on it was it was Utah and Arizona border. And, you know, I was just, I was with my wife and we had a guy who was sort of showing us around and he's like, I want to, I want to like show you, I want to take you off path a little bit and I want to show you something. And so we go off path and he, he had collected these objects and this guy had spent, you know, years sort of hiking these trails and he collected these little objects and he sort of un- unveiled this little tray of things that he had found. And they were like, what you might expect, there were like instruments for baking, there were instruments for, or like instruments for cooking, there were instruments for hunting. But there was also pottery, like there was also art, mm. right? And I was like, "Wow, these are really beautiful." And this guy is like staring at me. This guy Christian, he's like, "No, no, do you you don't understand? These people were being hunted. Their only sort of their only mode day in and day out was like survival. Can I eat? Can I stay safe? And yet they still found the time. They still made it a priority to create these objects of art." Mm. It, it just shows you how deep and how primal this need is yeah. to express ourselves, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I'm as tired as anybody else about these conversations about purpose and meaning happening only in the 1% because I think that like what I love about, you know, this book, what I'm proud of with this book is it's about the plumbers. It's about the, it's about the, you know, it's about the nurses. It's about, you know, my friend at Trader Joe's. It's, it's, it's about how they can find they can find a, a way to express who they are in their lives, you know? And, and I think for, for us, you know, you and me, yes, we've had some success, but we've also had some failures as well. And I, <laughs> yeah. and I think, and I think the, the question that I think that both of us are, are probably coming to, and I think a lot of people are, is gosh, like, okay, yeah, I was so afraid of the failure and now I've, I've achieved some, some level of success. I've, I've certainly still had more failures than success, but the insight is that like, that success didn't necessarily fill the gap that mm-hmm. I was looking to fill, right? Yeah. And so now, if it if that if that's not happening, then 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 what's going to what's going to be the thing? So, like you know, I'll give you an example because I think it might help. Which is like you know, there's a, there's a nurse named Karen Struck in the book, and you know, she really wanted to be a writer when she was a kid. Like, and she was good. Like, her teachers were like, you know, you're a standout writer. You should go write books. And so she, you know, time comes for her to fill out her college application essay. And she tells her parents, I want to go, I want to go be a liberal arts major. I want to go be a writer. And they're like, to hell with that. You're going to go make money because that's, you know, we, we, we are a very working class family. We don't have the money to support you. And so you're going to go pursue medicine. So she becomes a nurse and she spends so many years as a nurse that she almost forgets this writing side of her. Right. Um, but as she advances up the ranks, she finally finds her way into a head role of the ER. And part of that role means she has to do a lot of paperwork, right? And this is the stuff that nobody wants to do. But what she finds is that she starts to love this paperwork. And part of the reason for that is because she gets an opportunity to start telling these patient stories. So while most people would actually just like fill out the clinical details and hit print, she found herself like actually sitting there at, at like a typewriter, actually writing about who this patient was, who do they love? What, what did they love to do in the evenings? And these, these, these literally these clinical patient forms started to become these almost like mini novellas that were passed around the hospital, right? Doctors would read them, nurses would read them. And it started to remind them of their purpose and like the humanity of what they did uh, every day. 
And ultimately, that's how she she started to find her dharma again, mm-hmm. right? That's how she started to kind of settle back into that place. Was oh my gosh, yes, I am a writer, and while I can't quit my job because this pays my salary, and I can't go become a full time writer at this point, I can start to express who I am through what I do. This is not lost on anybody who's listening. And this is one of the things I was looking so forward to our conversation today because those in our community many of which are professional creators, right? They're designers, they're photographers, entrepreneurs, building businesses. And there's a whole um, swath of listeners and watchers in our community who, for whom they are either curious about how to move toward this as a profession, or they have done a great job carving out time in their life, space in their life around family, uh, around work, career, all these other obligations that, that we have as adults in a modern world to still make art and in, a, in many ways make a masterpiece of their lives. So it, using Dharma as the lens for this, and let's reflect what you said not too long ago, that this is sort of like essence. How do you in, you know, very explain it to me like I'm five years old, <laughs> how do we using Dharma and to use your phrase again, everyday Dharma, how do we tap into this? Yeah. The metaphor that I love is really Michelangelo, who would look at a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside, right? And I think we begin there because so often when we think about purpose and and meaning or, or Dharma in this case, we sort of feel like we have to go on this journey, this external journey to go find it. And I certainly have gone on that journey. I, I did the backpacking through the Himalayas. I've talked to all the experts. I did the meditation retreats and I did all of that. But what I kind of realized is that like, actually it was, it's inside of me, right? And it's inside of you. And, and, and there are some things that we can do to start to remove the layers, right? That are hiding it, right? And I think that the layers that, that ultimately end up bearing it first of all, tend to be, you know, other people's expectations, other people's judgments, right? And then just sometimes just the realities of life, right? In the case of Karen, the nurse, like it was just like paying the bills. Like, and and like, that's a real, it's a real thing. What I think that we can start to do though, is start to ask ourselves some questions that give us a, a peek back into what that essence is. So one of the people in the book, her name is Mila, right? And Mila is working inside a big technology company, she realizes that she really wants to be a teacher. Like that's what she wants to do. The problem is that her family relies on her salary, relies on her healthcare insurance. She's a working mom. She's like, I can't, I'm not going to quit. I can't quit my job and go get a teaching certificate at this point in time without disrupting like my family's well-being. So she feels trapped, right? She's like, this is, this is my life. And it's more, it's more a paycheck than a passion, but I'm just going to accept it. But she's at a meeting with a mentor. They're having coffee. And she kind of was like telling her, like, look, I'm not into what I'm doing right now. And I really wish that I would have chosen to have been a teacher. I would have gone back in time and taken that path. And that's when the mentor asked her a very specific question. And the question is, what is it precisely about teaching that you love? Teaching is your dream job. But what is it precisely about that dream job that you really love? And you know, Mila starts to spout off some answers, but the mentor asks for more and more. Like, let's go deeper, go deeper. What is that real thing? And finally, what Mila is able to do, she's able to go beneath the title of teacher and into actually what she loves about teaching. And what she realizes is that thing is that she just loves to help people grow, right? That's the thing. That's, that was her essence, right? 
And as she started to kind of like the memories started to flood back of like her helping neighbors ride bikes and like, you know, helping her cousins do things like this is who she is. It was her nurturing personality. She called her mom and said, you know, mom, I, I think I've like had this major insight about myself. I love helping people grow. And her mom's like, yeah, no, no, no kidding. Like, this is who you are. It's like who you've always been. So all of a sudden, Chase, it goes from her like wanting to be a teacher or bust to Going back to this essence of I love to help people grow, which all of a sudden expands all these possibilities for her. Yeah, teacher is one possibility, mm-hmm. but what she ultimately ended up doing is she ended up becoming, she ended up having a training role inside her own company, a pretty small shift, right? Same company, same department, but everything changes. She, she goes from dreading her job to jumping out of bed with like enthusiasm and energy. She becomes a rising star in the company. Her husband notices her, her kids see their mother come alive. I, I think the myth that I, I, I was stuck in for so long is that we have to abandon our job. We have to yeah. abandon our life in order to transform who we are. When oftentimes our dharma is right within the reach of or where we are right now. It's fascinating to me to hear you say that this, there's something that is profound about excavating and i know you what the one of the, the first chapter or the second chapter is about uncovering your essence and sort of like this yeah. idea that it's within you and it seems like so many of us i wrote in creative calling about people hey you're creative by nature that is your nature of every human being and like the having to, the belief that you have to move to Paris and wear a beret and smoke the cigarette and become totally. a, you know, a starving artist. Like those are all myths. So to that end of Mila um, and finding the, the thing within proximity to her, what is some advice that you would give or how can people ask better questions of yeah. themselves in order to discover this thing that Mila's mentor helped her discover? So here, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give a couple and, 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 and we can, we can go from there. So, you know, the, the, the one I love the most, which is pretty basic is what would you do for free? Right. And you've probably heard this one before, but sure. I, I think just sitting down and asking yourself, what would you do for free is such a great way to illuminate the kinds of things that are at the core of your essence. Right. Like for me, like I, you know, Chase, you and I were talking about writing books before we actually hit record, right? Like book writing is not a money-making thing. It's not like, it's, it's a very difficult way to make money. And we certainly have better paths if that's the goal. But the thing is that I just, I just love it so much. I love, I love like writing chapters and I love like the way that books are formulated. There's a craft to it that, you know, is, is worth my time, even if it doesn't sell Mm. at all. Right. Um, and so, I know that's one of my things. The, the, the other thing that I think is really sort of helpful and has been helpful for me is to identify the bright spots of your job, right? Mm. So for me, like I worked, I worked years as a technology you know, in tech. In tech. I, I started my own company. And as much as I wanted to enjoy that, I really didn't. I didn't like running a company. I didn't, I, I, I didn't like running a team. I wasn't very good at it, but what I was able to do was I would start to identify what were the things that I actually was like actually enjoying. And what I always came back to over and over again is that I loved listening to customer stories. I loved taking those stories, packaging them together, 
and telling our investors about it, telling our partners about it, and most importantly, telling the team about it. And once I started to really kind of lean into that, these bright spots, and start, I started to magnify them. I started to say, hey, let me do more of that. So if you visited me before this insight came to be, you visited our office, you'd see a bunch of dashboards, you'd see a bunch of metrics, you'd see like, you know, what's our, what's our you know, CPC funnel look like, you know? If you visited me after this insight, you would, see, you would see customer stories. You'd see people, we had a health coaching service called Rise, it was one-on-one coaching. And so what you'd see is like people talking about the way that, that losing weight affected their relationship with their family or how they became a better leader or how they became a better teacher. And we plaster those stories everywhere. Before we started meetings, I would insist that, hey, let's, let's talk about a story before we talk about the numbers, right? Because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't leave my job. I, it wasn't like I was like, you know, I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to blow up everything. I'm going to like, right. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like fold the company, but I could start to express that essence. And I think that's one thing that I think even for, for people who don't like their job right now, if you feel stuck in a full-time job that you don't love, one of the things we can do is we can actually identify the spots that we do love. Like, I think we can use sometimes these experiences of misery to understand what brings us joy by starting to identify these diamonds in the rough and then understanding how do we take that those those practices and bring more of that into our day even just a little bit more because sometimes just that little bit more of alignment can can make a huge huge difference yeah. the third question that i'll just share with you really quickly is you've probably heard the question what would you do what would you do if you couldn't fail and i think that's a helpful question but i think the twist on it that i would i would challenge anybody to kind of think about is what would you do even if it was likely that you would fail right because I think that if you can answer that question, then, then you absolutely know that you're putting yourself on a path where even if the goal isn't met, the journey will have been worth it, right? And that is not to say, by the way, that you shouldn't care about the goal. It isn't to say like, you know, screw, screw the accomplishment, screw the achievement, because that, that is a black and white sort of way of thinking, right? And I don't think you need to renounce ambition in order to take this path of Dharma. You can want things. You can want to achieve things, but when you're on a path where even if that stuff doesn't happen, you've won anyway, in some way, then, then you're, you're, you're almost, you're almost undefeatable, right? Like you cannot be taken down because every single day turns into a little win. How do you overcome? And again, this is another question that I have wrestled with. I shared with you before we started recording, as we were talking about books and whatnot, that this was especially well-timed because in my weekly email newsletter that I send out, I had just written about the difference between success and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly aware that I invite people to reply to these email, the newsletters that I send out. And sometimes I get hundreds. I have on occasion got a couple thousand responses, but wow. usually it's a couple hundred and I vow to read them and it's a big commitment. And there's a very consistent when I write about these things, there's a very consistent point of, I'll say contention. I don't know if that's the right word. I'll just say feedback or an awareness that I developed through listening to um, people share about their experiences. And there is a unmistakable sense that I get that there's a belief that these are luxuries that we're talking about. Like mm. aligning with your dharma is a luxury. Mm. And there's a practicality to the things that the decisions that, you know, that we have all made, or in this case, the email, the responses that I was getting via email. And there's a section in the book called Dharma versus duties. Mm -hmm. And 
I was reminded about that when I was thinking about all of this, the lens of the responses that I were getting. It's like, yeah, what? I got to be practical. And you essentially, you you touched on it with this, like, oh, there there are ways to excavate, you know, this the job that you have to get closer aligned with your dharma. But what about like if there if is it always available to us? Is there always something in your existing job that's closer to your dharma? Or what do you say to the person that says, oh, it's just not practical to do Mm. the thing? that I feel, but it's just not realistic. What's your answer to that? So I think, you know, in the book, I talk about these three different ways that we can start to bring duties to Dharma, right? And and start to blend these two things. And because I, I think the reality is like, most of us don't have, don't feel like we have the time to do this. We're overwhelmed, right? And we have bills to pay and the practicality is so important. Otherwise, like the philosophy is useless. The first way I think is the one that we're probably the most familiar with, which is like what what some of us might call the side hustle, right? I mean, it's 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 finding little pockets of time, right, throughout your day where you can start to engage with this thing that you love. So Toni Morrison, writer, Nobel Prize winner, was like a single mom, you know, and she was completely overwhelmed. But what she started to do is get little scraps of paper, like literally anytime she had a little bit of time, she was like writing on little scraps of paper. And those little scraps of paper ended up turning into paragraphs, eventually pages, eventually chapters, eventually Nobel Prize winning literature, right? That, that, that's the, I think that's the style that like a lot of us are familiar with because we've heard so much about the side hustle, but it's important. Like my wife and I talk about this. We like, we, we have this loving relationship, but the fact is that we spend like that, you know, sometimes like 10 minutes a day of truly connected time with one another. We have two kids, right? Like, and it's like, we feel like we're scrambling. She's got a full-time job. I've got a full-time job. And it's just like, we don't have time. But what we make sure of is that we have 10 minutes before the kids wake up and go berserk. The two of us sit down, have a cup of coffee together. And that time and that heartbeat of daily, of doing that on the daily basis is what forms our relationship, right? And I think that the same is true about Dharma having a loving relationship with your dharma is much more about being full hearted than it is about being fully scheduled right mm. so to, to me that means being present in some small way and having a touchstone in some small way with your dharma each day that's how it works and it, and again it can just be for a few minutes the second is this idea of how do we bring dharma to our duties how do we actually start to take like our this yeah. thing that we love, right? And actually bring it into our duties. You know, so this is the this is the story of the accountant who really loved to be like loved art and was and had sort of the side hustle thing going. He would he would paint in his garage, but he's like, wait a second. I'm spending half of my waking life at the job. And and I feel like I have these boundaries here where I'm bringing none of this essence of me as an artist into my job. And so, you know, what he decides to do is he starts to bring graphs to his presentation. He starts to get to the whiteboard a lot more often, draws diagrams for his clients, just starts to just starts to express this this part of himself in some small way. And I know it sounds minor. I know it sounds like, well, well that, that, that's not going to do much, but it does a lot because you can actually start to embody this persona. You know, for me, I, I for a long time when I realized that I love like storytelling was my essence. I, I didn't know, like, I'm in, I'm in a tech job. Like, there's nothing to do with storytelling. I, I work for a consulting firm. But what I started to do was I, I, I literally wrote, you are a storyteller on a piece of paper. And I, I carry that in my pocket wherever I go, right? And just carrying that piece of paper in my pocket, it would just remind me that like, hey, yeah, 
uh, your LinkedIn profile says tech consultant, which is the opposite of storytelling in a lot of ways. <laughs> but you can bring your essence as a storyteller to all these little moments, right? When you're inside, when you're inside a meeting, maybe it's something that you notice about the client. You tell a story to your to your colleagues, but, or, you know, whatever whatever it is. But but you can start to bring this 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 dharma side of you to your duties. Then I think that there's also the reverse of that, right? Which is the third way is to bring your duties into your dharma, right? How, how do you how do you do that? And and that to me is really about noticing. Like, what are the things you're starting to notice about your job that you can actually start to bring into your craft? And you know, the the, the almost obvious and like cliche example of this, but I, I love it anyway, is Eminem, right? Like Eminem worked in an assembly line. He worked in the assembly line that was a few miles down from where from down from the house where I grew up in Detroit. And like he, he like he would basically like pay attention to the noise to the clanks of the metal, to the way the machinery was working, to the beats that he was hearing, and he would take that and he would bring it into his music. Right? You know, he was constantly carrying around a notepad and he's constantly writing things down. My buddy Rich, he actually did the whole thing that you and I were talking about, really wanted to be a painter. And so he moved to Florence and became a painter. But his mom got sick. She, she, she was died, like she had, this, she had this emergency operation. So he comes back, he, go, he moves back to Detroit, and he takes a job at Trader Joe's and he's like, look, you know, he, there's just the two of them. His father's long gone. He's like, I, I got this. I'm going to take care of you. But what that means is I, I don't get to go be in Europe painting. I need to be here in Detroit taking care of her. So she's at, he's at Trader Joe's and what he decides to do is he starts to really kind of tune into the objects and experiences that he's seeing at Trader Joe's. And he would take those experiences back home. And so he would literally paint like, you know, what was the look on the little kid's face when they saw like the new Christmas cookies in Dale? And he would paint that <laughs> and he would start to like bring his duties into his Dharma and eventually start to bring his Dharma back into his duties. Trader Joe's asked him to like paint a mural in their newest store. And so fusing these two things together, I find, I think is an even more powerful way than sort of segmenting because I think we've been told to sort of segment. And if you have a life that doesn't really match your job, then let's separate those two things. And you have this side hustle and, and you do that. But maybe there's another way, which is like, gosh, we spend so much time at our job. We spend so much time at our work. Is it necessary that our job title and our identity need to match one another? I don't think so. I think that you could have the, I think you could have the spirit of an artist. I think you could have a spirit of a, of a DJ and still be working in, as a lawyer and still be working as an accountant. And you know, I hope that this book is, is you know, the, the practicalities of the book are showing us ways and how we can kind of bring these two worlds together. When I was reading this part of the book, I could not help but think of my own experience as a graduate student. I bailed on medical school and I was like, okay, well then I'm going to go. I didn't, you know, I've disappointed my parents. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to then go to graduate school in philosophy. We've been talking about philosophy for a long time here. It's a different kind of doctor. My parents can still be proud of me. It's a PhD, you know, and I'm justifying this every way from Sunday. <laughs> and then I do this. I'm two years into this program and I'm realizing, uh-oh, uh, I'm an artist trapped in this technical philosophy. I was at the University of Washington in graduate school. It's um, highly, it's, it's got a very specific angle to it and not the kind that I was interested in studying. And I started bringing photographic projects into my term papers. Wow. And we were studying the, the Foucault, which is a, uh, modern French, uh, philosopher focused very much on 
control, command, institutions, for example. And so I was doing these photographic projects where you would, he studied the prison was a big, was a big Foucaultian project. And I mailed my final project, which was a photographic essay along with some writing in a locked box to the teacher, assuming that the teacher was going to have to figure out how to unlock this thing as a mechanism to underscore the point that I was trying to make about people, you're inside or the outside and your oh, institution or it did not go well, <laughs> but, but the concept awakened me the ability to bring my sort of artist sort of sensibilities yeah. into this. And it certainly created a kerfuffle in the department. And I would say that you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. And this helped me stand out. And I, regardless of what the University of Washington philosophy PhD department thought of me, I became alive. And so mm -hmm. I have this firsthand experience that I wanted to share with you about actually bringing that Dharma. And what it did is it ultimately, that was a half measure. And it ultimately led me, to, it gave me the courage to quit the PhD program, yeah. walk out, out on my own and, and pursue the photography part. Cause I was like, I love that. I was able to actually ma make, it was an impact whether you liked it or not. It like, I had conversations with the head of the department because of doing shit like that. And I loved it. And I was like, that's, that's my true, you know, my true essence. So I, I love in, that, man. In, yeah. In reading this, I just want to share with anyone who's listening that Sunil knows what he's talking about. This does powerful stuff. The idea of bringing your Dharma in along with you, this is not something you need to set on the shelf and only pay attention to it when it's convenient. It's very, very practical. I just wanted to, to say that you nailed that. You really did Thanks, in the man. book. It's beautiful. Shifting topics, you, I want to go a little bit to this writing process. You cited at the beginning of our conversation that you first became aware of this from your grandfather. And so as you, you know, at what happened in your life, you talked about having a number of successes and starting to then turn to this, like, what was the process that you went through in a writing and B more specifically like honing in on this topic. Yeah. You know, Dharma was a concept that he taught me. You know, we would sit, the first trip I took to New Delhi that I really remember, I was seven years old. And my grandfather, early riser, this legendarily large guy, you know, he's like over six feet tall, big barrel chested guy, marched with Mahatma Gandhi, you know, was an attorney by training, but just like this really wise man that everybody in the neighborhood looked to. And he woke up at like 4.30 in the morning every morning. And I was jet lagged as a kid. And I was pretty hyper anyway. So I woke up super early and we were the only two that were awake. So we would spend these mornings on the on, the, on this porch in New Delhi. And we just watched the streets come alive. We watched, you know, rickshaws fire up their engines and fruit cart vendors start to roll down the street and cows would amble to pasture. I remember all of it. And like, for me as a kid from Detroit, I'm like watching this whole new like world that I'd never seen before. And my grandfather would sit there and he would drink his chai and he would tell me stories and he would tell me about this way that my ancestors lived, which was, which was Dharma. And the thing that I, I sort of remember the most is him pointing to an Indian flag and showing me the flag. And it, if the Indian colors are, are orange and green and white, but at the center of the flag is a wheel. And he said, that, that is the Ashoka Chakra. That's the wheel of Dharma. And he's, yeah, it's exactly. And it's, it's, it's what the, it's, you know, the way he sort of described it to me is like, you can almost think of that as the wheel of your life. 
and the wheel continues to turn over and over again. But the thing to know is that it's going to continue to turn faster over time, right? Every sort of year is going to feel a little bit more brief than the year before that, right? It's going to, or in, in, you know, each birthday is going to arrive a little sooner than the one before that. And years are going to start to squish together. And it's very, very easy for us to get sucked to the outside of the wheel, right? All the duties, all the things we need to do. And it's easy to forget who we are at the center of that wheel because that is your dharma, right? And that was a lot for like a seven-year-old to like take in. But I, but I remember that so, so well. And at the moment that I felt like, look, this isn't working. I feel this emptiness. And, and as, I, as I started to sort of say, like, I don't, I don't, I, I feel so lost. I feel so burnt out. I feel so depressed right now. I started to return to what, what really was Dharma? Like, what, what was it? And so I started to go through, you know, the exercise was very East meets West for me. I, on the Eastern side of things was me going back to, back to my grandfather's home in New Delhi, combing through his scriptures, rereading the Bhagavad Gita several times, which was the, was the, 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 the scripture that first used the word Dharma, like really mm-hmm. brought it into contemporary philosophy. And then, and then like starting to understand how this philosophy has made its way from, you know, ancient to modern, from East to West, to the hands of people like Martin Luther King to Jimi Hendrix, to Hank Aaron, to people who were these contemporary people who, who like really, really had to go through some difficult, challenging moments in order to find their dharma, and then more importantly, to like live their dharma. And, and I started to kind of break that down. The third and final sort of phase of this is, is that just like, let's go modern day, right? And when we go modern day, let's get the fuck out of Silicon Valley, and let's go to like Detroit. Let's go to... Let's get, let's get like into the weeds of people who are like, you know, living the day to day, like, and, and just as much as anybody else deserve to have a sense of purpose and meaning in their life, because it is primal. It is, it is a part of us. Right. And so how are they doing it? How are they bringing this craft into their day to day? That that's what I was after. There's a a page that I have dog-eared. It's page 151 in the hardback. Um, and to that point of sort of deserving it and showing up for yourself, it, this, this section is called tiny contracts. Mm. And I'm wondering if you can share with us the meaning behind tiny contracts. I found it very beautiful and, and inspiring and helpful. Yeah. You know, I think, um, the idea behind tiny contracts is it is a, it is a binding agreement that you're making with yourself to go all in with something for a period of time, right? And you get to set the amount of time, you get to set the amount of length. The way that it was brought to me is I was, I was, I was, you know, in Detroit, I was talking to a, an automotive executive, right? Somebody who had climbed his way from like the factory floor to a role that was like, you know, a, a pretty senior role. And I asked him, I just said, hey, like, how much longer are you planning on staying with the company? And his answer to me was one year, one year. And I was like, well, wow, so you're planning on retiring in one year. He's like, no, 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 I'm not I'm planning on retiring in a year. What I realized is that he had this process that he would go through where he would go to his lake house. He had, he had, he had a spot, a very small little spot in Wisconsin that his wife and him would go to. And every summer they would go there and he would spend about a week by the lake and he would ask himself, am I still doing what I love, right? Am I, am I still doing this thing that, that like makes me come alive? And if the answer to that is yes, then I will renew my commitment to that for one year, right? One more year. 
right? Until the next time we're here at the lake, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna renew it again, or, or I'll decide to go do something else, right? And that's the way that he sort of lived his life is through these one year commitments. And the reason that I think that this is so kind of groundbreaking is because we are so one foot in, one foot out with what we do. I think a lot of us, including me for a long period of time, was sort of always constantly scanning the market for other opportunities while I was working on the thing that I was working on. And, and, and the sort of outcome of that is that you're never kind of fully committed, fully all in, fully passionate about this thing. And the result of that is that you don't quite know whether the thing that you're doing is really actually making you come alive because you haven't fully committed to it. In order to know if something's actually right for you, you kind of have to dive in, right? But like over 90% of us right now, there was this crazy study that came out in CNBC the other day. It's like over 90% of us are scanning the market for other jobs. We're looking for other jobs right now, right? So most of us are one foot in, one foot out, right? The idea behind tiny contracts is instead of instead of always kind of always kind of always being sort of like in between two worlds, instead commit for a period of time, a fixed length of time to be in one world and give it everything you've got, right? And that that amount of time is up to you. Is it six months? Is it 12 months? Is it 18? Whatever it is. But during that period of time, almost be laser-like. You're, 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 you're all in with that one thing. And you always know that there's another checkpoint around the corner, right? So even if you're not liking what you do, you commit to it. You say, look, I'm in this for 12 months. And then in 12 months or you know six months from now, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take some real time to evaluate whether this is right for me. It is a very powerful, that's one of the reasons I loved that, that part of the book. It is a very powerful concept and it's very similar to the concept of presence. If you've ever been with someone who is truly focused on you, who their attention is trained on you, when they ask you a question, they genuinely, genuinely want to know the answer. It makes every other conversation you have where people are sort of like, you know, looking behind you or like, yeah, cool, yeah. or on their phone. If you've ever had some, my wife is just absolutely incredible at directing attention. And now to be fair, she's studied this for a long time. She's a meditation and mindfulness teacher, yeah. her, you know, super high emotional intelligence. She's very sensitive and trained to that. But it is such a gift when you give someone your attention. And by extension, when I read that, that tiny contracts, it's like, if you just think back on your own life and the things that even if you decided that you didn't like them or wanted to do something different, you got to that decision or that result from being all in, which then there was this, uh, uh, there wasn't a disconnect between, I wonder, I wonder if I really gave it my all. It's just, right. it's a very beautiful way of being in the world. And to that end, I'm grateful for the work that you have done in writing this book, Everyday Dharma. Um, congrats. The, the package, obviously the, the in, internal, the guts of the package are beautiful. It's a beautifully written book. It's very digestible. Um, I read it in just a couple of sittings and thank you very much. It is so well-timed. And as I articulated earlier, you've nailed a, a, a topic that I'm, I'm fascinated by and, and I tried to tackle it and couldn't. You've done it a beautiful, a beautiful job and a service to all of us who are, are going to go out and buy this book. So mm. Thank you very Cheers, much. Man. Is there anywhere else besides picking up our copy of Everyday Dharma that you'd like to direct our attention, the, the, those of us uh, watching and listening right now? 
Yeah, you know what? In the spirit of tiny contracts and going all in on one thing, just go check out Everyday Dharma. Just Google okay. that and that'll be the place. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thanks. You're always welcome here on the show. Thanks, Keep Chase. Keep putting out this great work. And uh, until next time from everybody in the Chase Jarvis Live podcast universe, we bid you and everyone else out there a fantastic day. Thank you all. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests, either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>